Let me pray one more time for us. Father, I thank you for this place. I thank you for the time that you've given us this morning, and I thank you for everyone that has come here. Lord, I pray that you would help me speak. Lord God, help me preach this morning. Take over my mind. Calm my spirit. Help me focus. Help me think. I am completely, Lord, dependent on you for everything, for everything from my tone to my content to my delivery, Father. I need you this morning to be with me. And Father, I pray that you would watch over every single person who listens, that you would enable every single person to hear your word. And Lord God, I ask for this, that your son might be glorified, that your people might be encouraged and have hope that you might take captive every heart in this place this morning by your glory and your sufficiency for us and your son, Jesus Christ. And this I ask in his name and for his name. Amen. I love to think on how the Bible has been written, on how it's been written, the way that God shaped it to speak to us. It's a letter in a sense. I know it has different genres in it, but it's a letter written by a father to his beloved children. And so every piece of it, every piece of it matters. Not just what it says, but how it says it, why it says it, to whom everything is being said. So the order in our text this morning could not be more significant. Ever since, as a race, we were thrown out of the Garden of Eden, we have been looking for a home. We have been trying. Everything we do in some sense is an attempt to make a home, to, to find again a home. The followers of Jesus in Asia Minor were living in exile. They were enduring trials. And the strange way that suffering seems to widen the gap that we already feel in many ways between us and our Father, they had no home here. They were dispersed in out-of-the-way places. And in our text this morning, as we continue through 1 Peter chapter 2, in one indescribably beautiful metaphor... Peter proclaims that each one of them, each one of them is at the very center of what God is doing in the world. They, as a people, individually and as a people, are where God intended to dwell on the earth. They're being built together into one residence for Him here. They are God's building. And this morning, these words come to you and I, beloved, here in Moundsville, West Virginia, on purpose from heaven, from our Father. God gave the exiles in Asia Minor a distinct identity and a clear purpose, calling them to endure in the sorrow of unjust suffering because of what Christ had exemplified and purchased for them. So again, we're in First Peter chapter 2. I'm going to start off by reading verses 4 through 8. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now in Daniel chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, the prophet spoke of God's kingdom as a stone. A stone that would stand forever and of its increase there would be no end. Years before that, Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 28 that God was laying a stone in Zion, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. In Psalm 118, the psalmist spoke of a cornerstone that would bring salvation to all who believed and that would also be a stumbling block to all who rejected it. So very deeply embedded in Israel's history was this 
conviction that she was God's promised kingdom. That Jerusalem was the city from which God's salvation would come. And so the stone temple there stood at the center of God's activity in the world. But then, many years later, this poor, obscure, traveling evangelist from Galilee by the name of Jesus came along and took all the imagery of the stone passages in Hebrew Scripture and had the audacity to apply them to himself instead of applying them to Judaism or to Jerusalem or to the temple. And in the Gospel of Luke, he writes about how this Jesus came through the stone gates of Zion and stood in the temple teaching with authority. And the religious leaders of his day, who were steeped in biblical tradition and biblical memorization, asked him, by what authority do you do this? So he told them a parable about some wicked tenants who rejected the authority of the vineyard owner's son. And they knew what he meant. They weren't stupid. They knew he was talking about them, but Jesus wasn't afraid. So he provoked them even even more, quoting from the psalm about the rejected stone of God. But then he alluded to the prophet Daniel, and he called himself the stone not made with hands. He was the one that would come from heaven and replace all the kingdoms of this world. And in one moment, Jesus took all of Israel's poetic and prophetic stone imagery and called it His own. He proclaimed that in Him all the promises of God were being fulfilled. And this Jesus, called the man who was writing this letter, Peter, He called Him the rock on which He would build His church. So in verses 4 and 5 this morning, Peter gathers in, if you will, the exiles of Asia Minor and the exiles in Moundsville, West Virginia. I'm not just saying that. This is real. We even have a stone with us this morning from Uganda. You know how beautiful this is. He pulls them all in together and applies this language not only to himself, not only to Jesus but to any and every man, woman, or child who believes on Jesus Christ for salvation. You yourselves, like living stones in the kingdom of God. When we come to Jesus, not to the city of Jerusalem, we come to the living stone. When we come to Jesus, not to Judaism, we come into God's kingdom. When we come to Jesus, not to the stone temple, we become God's spiritual house. We become God's holy priesthood. Oh, beloved, do you know this morning, do you know who you are? If God was going to dwell anywhere in the world, certainly it would have to be the temple. He's going to have this royal priesthood of honored ones. He said He would, who would have the privilege of standing in His very presence. But Peter declares here, That in Christ, these things are transferred over to every single individual follower of Jesus. The church has become God's people and God's dwelling place in this world. You are the spiritual house. You are the holy priesthood. Beloved, do you understand the implications of the things Peter is saying? Do you understand them right now in your lives here in this place? My fingers are cold. It's cold in here and this is who you are I haven't been cold in a long time (laughs) this beautiful building is not holy because the windows are so intricately designed and they are it's one of the first things I noticed when I walked in this beautiful building back in March this building isn't holy because of that this building isn't holy because of the pews And they're so well upholstered, it isn't holy because of this chancel. Beloved, this building is holy because you are in it, believer. Because you are holy. God has said that of you. Because when you walk into this place, Christ in you is taking up residence here for a while. This building is a shell of brick and drywall and wood and nails where the church of the living God gathers. You are God's house. You are God's priesthood. Imagine being displaced as they were and burdened under trials and knowing, remember, not yet, not under state-sponsored persecution just yet, but knowing it was coming, it was in the air, and when it came it would be awful 
And they knew it. They felt it coming. And imagine hearing that you were not just floating around in a sea of chance or doom, that you weren't at the mercy of the world, but you were the very dwelling place of God in the world. You are where God continues to be present in Christ here on earth. And God is not leaving it up to you and I to maintain the building. He is doing the work. Remember? He's doing it. You are Peter. And on this rock, Jesus said, I will build my church. Church growth strategies. Please. Jesus will build His church. As we come by grace through faith to Jesus through nothing but the proclamation of the living word, the gospel, Jesus takes each one of us as we come and says, and you, you go right here into the building. And you, you go right here into the building. If you have come to Jesus, you are at the very center of what God is doing in this world. And it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what you do for a living. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter how much you make. Do you understand who you are? We are His house. The world could burn this building down. This God's house remains. You are God's sacred space in the world. Did you know that? You can't get any closer to God than through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus fulfills the Bible's promise of a house, not a rebuilt stone temple. Jesus is here. He's come. God has His temple, beloved. It's you and I, in Christ, the church. Jesus fulfills all that imagery. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ, not in anyone or anything else. 2 Corinthians 1.20. That word for in verse 6 there. That because, that for, indicates that Isaiah 28 was a prophecy. And remember, what do we know now in Peter, the guy who quotes the Old Testament, uh, only Hebrews and Revelation do it more. So Peter knows, he's very deliberate with his Old Testament quotations. And what has he told us already about the prophets? Who were they actually serving? You, the church. Isaiah 28 was a prophecy then indicating that believers are the people of God and will be built as a spiritual house on the cornerstone who is Christ. So Peter says the honor of being a part of God's spiritual house in verse 7 is for those who what? Who believe. The honor's for them. The honor isn't for anyone else. Only those who believe, those that do not believe, stumble over Jesus. To them, this cornerstone is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So they disobey the word, Peter says. That is, they don't believe the word. The last sentence in verse 8 there, it's, it's, it's difficult. It means one of two things. Just based on the words that are in the text, either the stumbling of those because they don't believe is what they were destined to do. They were destined to stumble because they don't believe, or they were destined not to believe. But believers here, or unbelievers here, are lumped in out of Isaiah with the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the builders of another kingdom who rejected Jesus. Jesus is not the only one building a house or building a temple in this world, beloved. That's why we struggle. There are other builders his enemies are trying to build their own kingdom. And those that reject Christ are laying brick on that building. Those who reject the one true and living stone we find are rejected by God. Jesus is the cornerstone upon whom the true people of God, again, believers in Jesus only, are being built. This is God's true house. This is the fulfillment and realization of the temple. So God's people ultimately are a spiritual house comprised of both believing Jews and Gentiles. Ephesians 2, 11 to 3, 6 and our text this morning. The house of God is a spiritual reality and Peter isn't done. He isn't done. Look at verses 9 and 10. But you, in contrast to those who disobey the word, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
In verses 9 and 10, Peter applies words that were spoken to the nation of Israel in Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy 7 and Hosea. He applies them to the church, to the spiritual house that God is building. This is what he's doing. Creating or or showing who we are. God's chosen people are no longer said to be those physically descended from Abraham. Believers in Jesus are the true chosen race. The nation blessed by God is no longer the nation of Israel. Believers in Jesus are now God's true holy nation. This shouldn't be a surprise to us if we've been keeping track of what the Bible's been telling us. Where in Romans 9, Paul taught that not all who descended from Israel are Israel. True Israel has always been the believing remnant within the nation itself. God's people of promise are spiritual. They're not a physical entity. In verse 10, the people of Israel are no longer said to be the people of God. For believers in Christ, both Jew and Gentile, are now God's people. They are the ones who have now received mercy. So through believers in Christ, God has fulfilled His promise to the prophet Isaiah. He's realized His desire to have a people. You are not a second-hand citizen in the kingdom of God, believer. You are not. You're not class B. Because of Christ. You and I are not a parenthesis in God's plan for national Israel. We are the true Israel of God. Galatians 6, 16. I do not mean, by the way, and Peter does not mean, that we have replaced, that the church replaces Israel. No, no, no. Peter means that as the only obedient Israelite there ever was, as the only one who ever kept the covenant, all the covenant blessings of the Mosaic covenant fall to Jesus Christ and to Jesus Christ alone. We receive these benefits not because we are replacing Israel, but because we are in Christ the true and better Israel, the faithful and obedient son that God also called out of Egypt. This was the plan from the very very beginning when God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. The, The covenant with Israel that came 430 years later did not nullify God's initial intention. The old covenant had its purpose. It was served and fulfilled by Jesus. All eyes now on Him. All eyes on Jesus. That's a tough thing to argue. It's a tough thing to argue that that shouldn't be the case. All eyes on Christ. No one and nothing else. Beloved, you are chosen and precious. You. Every believer in this room and everyone who will believe. Chosen and precious. And all this, all these things are granted to us who simply believe. That's it. And notice this. Here is the purpose of God building a spiritual house out of those who have believed on the cornerstone. There's a purpose here. One purpose. That you and I may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Our purpose as a church, universally, cosmically, is one of pure proclamation about the One who saved us. About the One who gave us an identity. One who would do such a thing, Peter thinks, is so great that he has to be proclaimed. His excellencies are various and they are innumerable. You never run out of things to proclaim about him. The spiritual house is a proclaiming house. The church's mission is not come to us and see. The church's mission is go and tell, proclaim. And in that light, verse 10 works as a rationale For the purpose statement in verse 9, it's fuel for the fire, so to speak. Look, once you were not a people, you had no identity, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, you were hopeless, but now you have received mercy. This is what Christ has done. In light of that, Peter is saying, in light of that, go proclaim the excellencies of this Savior. Now, notice, notice, Notice how the next word is the word Peter uses to set up all the practical instructions he is about to give. Look at the top of verse 11. 
beloved. I didn't make that word up. Beloved. Right there in the text. Inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. That's our name now. You realize that. You realize that's what God is doing here for these saints in Asia Minor and He's doing for you in Moundsville? You and I have a new name. And we all get a new name. I know that's coming. But here, beloved, set your mind on verses 4 through 10 as much as you can until the beauty that is there, until you just get lost in it. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Believer, you are now God's beloved. That's a word you use on purpose. That's a word you use for someone when what you want them to know more than anything else is that you love them. You are my beloved. You don't, you don't say that to people that you like or even kind of... Like, like you can love pizza... If you call pizza your beloved, you need to go see somebody. <laughs> right? It's, it's, a ve- it's a very intentional word. It's a very intentional word. And David Helm writes, Beloved is the honored title that accompanies everyone whose spiritual identity and eternal destination are wrapped up in Christ. And it is in light of this incomprehensible truth that we are called to live a certain way now. As God's beloved. God gave us a name before He gave us a mission. You realize that. That's why order matters. That He gave us a home before He sent us out. You will always be able to come back here, is what He's saying here. Because He knows, look, God is, He knows that we're sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Does anybody here not know what happens to sheep in the midst of wolves? We need to know our name. Before we do anything. Our calling here then is not how we make ourselves God's children. We have the unique calling that we do because we are already His beloved children. The spiritual reality of what God has done for us in Christ is the basis for all the practical instructions that follow. We have to grasp, beloved, together. We have to grasp the objective, indicative reality of what God calls us, of what God has done for us before we will ever be able to accept how He has called us to live. Because it's crazy. If we do not see our identity as a spiritual one, if we don't see who we really are as a spiritual issue, if we see ourselves physically or nationally or only naturally, if we can't see the spiritual reality of who we are, we will be unable to obey commands that have their very rationale in the fact that hope does not exist for us in this world. That identity does not exist for us in this world. If we cannot grasp this spiritual reality, we cannot obey. We won't be able to do it. Our calling is what it is precisely because of our spiritual identity. God frees us to serve Him in the world by addressing the one thing that separates us from Him and keeps us from being His people, our sinfulness. God has dealt with that. He's addressed it once and for all sufficiently in Christ and in Christ alone. He removes that sin with a perfect and final salvation, now enabling a holy, a set-apart life that is built on hope. That's who Peter is. That's, that's how he's known in literature, the apostle of hope. Now our souls are justified, is what he's telling us here. The real you that will never end is justified. And the physical life out here in the world that the justified soul lives is meant to be incomprehensible to the world and therefore attractive to the world. And you can only, we can only live this life when we remember that our name is beloved. Beloved in verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. 
The primary battle is not the world against you, beloved. It is you against you. The enemy wants you to think. We talk about this all the time. The enemy wants you to think that people are your enemy and the world is your enemy. In some way, this is true. But the primary battle is not them against you or us against them. It is us against us. It's the you and me that wants to find hope in this world versus the new you and me that knows better. And the primary way that the passions of our flesh will wage war against our souls is to try to convince us that we are not sojourners and exiles. We're citizens. And because we're citizens in this world, we should fight and claw to make the world into what we want it to be. But these imperatives, these commands, are the antithesis of citizenship in the world and are the epitome of a sojourning exilic lifestyle. These are commands that are written for people who don't have a home here. Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles or the unbelievers now. You see how Jesus changes all the categories. Gentile equals unbeliever now. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, and they will do that. Do you understand we live in that right now? The the rising tide is that you and I, that believers, or anybody that labels themselves conservative, although they're not the same thing, but the consensus is we're evil, we're bad for the world, and and now that, 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 that they're losing ground, you're hearing it come out for what it really is. You can't be civil with people like you and I. You can't be kind. You should have the right to interrupt you when you're eating. And you, you feel it. You feel it coming. You feel it coming. There's nothing to do with nationality, beloved. That's a spiritual thing. These deeds, these specifically, are the deeds God says will glorify Him. These are the deeds that make you transparent so that when people look at you, they see through you to the God who is saving you. We're meant to be transparent. It's not, this is such a cliche statement now, but it really is not about you or me. We want when people look at us to see right through us to the God who is saving us. And Peter is telling you, you really want to do that? You don't just want to give lip service to that? You really want it to not be about you? Live like this. Which means you're going to have to give every personal right away. We live so that our sojourning exilic identity is what's visible. And here are the behaviors that make that totally clear. Good verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake, not their sake to every human institution. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, by doing that, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So, no matter how much you argue and put your opponents down and try to bash your opponents and make them look stupid and argue and argue and argue and blab and blab and blab. It will do nothing to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That doesn't happen by screaming back at the world louder than they are screaming at us. We don't put them to silence like that. We put them to silence by doing good, by submitting to earthly authorities. We put them to silence. These deeds, this kind of attitude accomplishes what words cannot. Words are for earth dwellers. Verse 16. Live as people who are free. Because you are. 
Because that's the spiritual reality. Do you see what I mean? Live as people. Imagine hearing that under the thumb of the Roman Empire. Imagine living in Indonesia right now, or Nigeria right now, or North Korea right now, and reading that sentence. Imagine it. Your family, our family, reads this text all the time around the world. How do you think they hear that? It's 16. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. See, we're all done. We're all done. We need a Savior. We need a Savior. It's Honor everyone. I said it like it was a question. It's not a question. It's a command. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. We don't, we're, we don't have an emperor. We, we can hardly track with this text. They had an emperor that wanted to kill them. They had an emperor that would soon take their brothers and sisters and maybe even some of them and dip them in wax, hang them on crosses and light them on fire to light the road for his soldiers. Honor the emperor? Peter, are you insane? Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. So, wait a minute. This is a gracious thing? This behavior here that he's calling us to models and proclaims grace. So there is a way that the gospel silences the ignorance of foolish people because there seems to be a certain kind of lifestyle that also proclaims the gospel. It doesn't mean we aren't doing verse 9 now, that, that we aren't verbally proclaiming the the content of the gospel. That's always the case. But there's also a lifestyle that proclaims grace, that proclaims the gospel, that proclaims where we found our hope. There's a way to live that displays that. And we're meant to live that way. And it's this way. Listen to verse 19 again. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. So God is the one we're focused on as we live this way. We live like this for the Lord's sake, remember, not for theirs. Remember, our eyes are fixed on Christ. We are where Christ is. We've been raised up with Him, seated with Him in the heavenly places. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Beloved, there it is. There, the, the, every imperative here is summed up in that one sentence. Every command. Our calling as God's beloved, is to endure sorrow while suffering unjustly. To endure it. Not try to stop it. To endure it. Why? Because that's the theme the rest of the way through here. This is the life of the sojourning exile in this world. God has not called us to a life that will allow us to think this is home. This is the calling of the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the people for his own possession. This is our calling. What makes us distinct, what makes us stand out, is the unique way we deal with the sorrow that comes from suffering. We endure in it. We remain hopeful in it. That's holiness, beloved. Our holiness is missional. It, it proclaims our hope to the world. Why does God call us to this? I mean, think about it. Is this really the gist of the Christian's life? Just blind adherence, no matter what, to this principle called submission? Absolutely not. That's not the gist of the Christian life. The principle of submission is not our foundation, beloved. We're, we're called to submission because we have been called in verse 9 to proclaim the gospel. 
Our goal is to be left alone by authorities so that we can keep doing verse 9. Our goal is to stay off the radar so that nothing interrupts verse 9 because we aren't trying to build a kingdom here. You understand what Peter is arguing for? Submission to authority is the surest way to keep the world from thinking back in verse 12 that we're evildoers. We submit to them. We give them no reason to know our whereabouts and what we're doing. We stay off the radar so that we can do verse 9. Submission serves the mission. Do we really want them to leave us alone so we can be about our business? Peter says, then submit to them. Soldiers don't get entangled in civilian affairs. Second Timothy. They don't get bogged down in secondary conflicts. Beloved, we are not trying to make this world livable for us. That is not what we are doing. You don't hang drapes and paint your airplane seat. We're going to... God desires that we endure the sorrow it causes us as sojourners and exiles so that our message has teeth. God wants the gospel dog to hunt, and this is how we do it. We're going to read on here and find that it's precisely our submission that makes us so much like our Savior. And beloved, the bottom line is this. The world will not hear the message of hope from another world, from people who look like their hope is rooted in this one. We've just completely, we just yell at them. Turn or burn! Okay. So yet we do crazy things like live as people who are free, even when under the thumb of an emperor. That is a testimony. That's a testimony. And remember, again, he's writing to people that are literally under the thumb of an emperor and they're about to get squashed. The command doesn't change. What is Peter's rationale? It's spiritual. It's spiritual. God sets up kings. God sets up governors and emperors. You're not submitting to them for their sakes because they're in charge. Do you see what God is saying to you? Beloved, you're actually free from them. You're free from them. These earthly systems and authorities have no claim over you whatsoever. I named you. You're mine. So while you're down there, submit to them. Show them you don't need them to support you or, or they don't need you. You don't need them to give you the honor and respect you deserve. If you live like that, that, if you don't need that from them, if you don't try to force that on them, that will be a hope you will have to defend. People will wonder what it is about you, and they're going to ask you about it. And when they ask you about it, now you have an opportunity to do verse 9. This is so offensive to us that we, I think, sometimes actually think Peter didn't say it correctly. I read commentaries. It's, it's amazing how some of them just completely dismiss what Peter is saying here and make this text about civil disobedience. When it, like that's the, the the complete opposite of what's actually in the text. So we bring up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They resisted. Or Daniel, he resisted. Wouldn't close his window, kept praying. Might even bring up this Peter and John. Remember what Peter John said back in Acts? We must obey God rather than men. Absolutely. So we, we might think, we might take those things and try to, you see, you, you, if you try to turn the Bible against itself, you, you just, you end up with nothing. So you might take those things and say, well, yeah, but, and then you know what you do? You don't ever do this and you always do that. When does this get done? If you make this a call to civil disobedience in the name of Jesus, that's not what the text is saying. That's the problem with that argument. There's nothing in this text remotely resembling civil obedience or civil disobedience. Beloved, when the emperor tells you, deny Christ, then you resist. 
When the emperor tells you, when the governor tells you that you are not allowed to worship God anymore, then you say, no, 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 I, I must obey God rather than men. I can't be silent about the gospel. Then you resist. That's not what this text is dealing with. It's a moot point here. Peter is making a call to, an unashamedly making a call, to complete civil obedience with no qualification. What do we do with that? Apparently we do nothing with it, right? It's, it's not there. Oh, it's there. It's there. Peter is talking about what good works look like from the vantage point of the ones who are most likely to be mistreated. Yes, we will suffer unjustly if we do this. God has called us to that and to endure the sorrow that it brings on us because of it. We shouldn't try to qualify this text this morning. Nobody in this room is being forced to deny Christ or to quit worshiping Him, at least not yet, not today. This text isn't talking about a Daniel situation or a Peter and John situation. It's talking about the way you live your normal everyday life. And listen, remember, don't feel like this is coming from somebody who's above us that doesn't really understand what we're going through. Again, remember the audience to whom he's writing, and then remember that this is Peter. This is the guy who, when they came to the garden, took the sword and cut off Malchus's ear. That's this guy. He wasn't aiming for his ear. Okay, That's not what he was doing. That's the guy that wrote what we're reading right now. What happened to him? How did he go from that? When Jesus said, what? My kingdom is not of this world. What are you doing cutting his ear off? And he puts it back on. He put it back on. My, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, His servants would be fighting. We aren't called to fight. We're called to die. Don't get busted for being a zealot, beloved. Your pool to proclaim Christ shrinks dramatically if you get thrown in solitary confinement. Verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? And what would be the context here by, by disobeying the ruling authorities? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He, you see that between 19 and 20. The text immediately repeats the idea from verse 19. It is a gracious thing to endure sorrow while suffering unjustly. That is the godly way. That is the gospel way. He says it twice in consecutive verses. Look at 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. So here is why it's a gracious thing in the sight of God to endure rather than reject sorrow while suffering unjustly. We've been called to do so because Christ endured sorrow while suffering unjustly and we are in Him. We are His. We belong to Him. We have that family name. That's what it means to be His beloved child in the world. We look like our older brother. This endurance binds our hearts to Christ. Beloved, it is one of the hardest things to understand. But there's a closeness with Jesus that will not come apart from suffering. He walked the road of a sojourner and an exile, and we were meant to literally put our feet into the steps He has laid for us. Do you know why? Because that's the way home. That's where He walked. Jesus walked home. And if you set your feet in His... That's exactly where you'll end up. We identify with Him particularly in our willingness to endure sorrow while suffering unjustly. So if we dedicate our lives to forcing the civil authorities to honor us rather than submitting to them as long as we can, we will never have peace. Jesus' footsteps don't go there. Jesus' footsteps don't go into courthouses and throne rooms to make it legal for us to be who we are. Jesus went to the cross and died for the people that were his enemies. Is there a harder teaching in Scripture for Americans this morning? Can we just be honest? 
I know we're running a little longer today. Please bear with me for just a few more minutes, all right? We're almost done. You see why verses 4 through 10 are so important? You see why we, we better have it settled that we're the beloved of God in Christ? I mean, look at the shape of Jesus' footprints in 22 and 23. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. This is Jesus we're talking about. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Beloved, we will suffer unjust judgment at the hands of the world, but God will judge justly. And he is our Father. The first part of 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Doing what? Suffering unjustly at the hands of the world. At our hands, beloved. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus undeservedly took on our guilt that we might live freely enough to endure sorrow while suffering unjustly. By his wounds, you have been healed. That's a description of the way, of the fact that the way of Christ is unjust suffering. And his unjust suffering was endured on our behalf because of our sins. So we don't have a dog in this fight here. Like we, we don't have anything to stand on here to come back at God and say, that's not fair. No, Jesus enduring unjust suffering was not fair. And He did it for us, completely, down to the dregs. We judge Christ unjustly, but God vindicated Him. Because that's what God does when you suffer unjustly. He vindicates. And He will now vindicate you and I. Trust Him. Believe in Him. Verse 25, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What's the place of that here? That four flows out of the entire paragraph. It's, it's a basis statement, a justification for being called to live such a life. That's what it is. The life of a sojourning exile, one who endures sorrow while suffering unjustly, but will be judged justly by God in Christ. We used to have no identity. We used to have no reason to endure sorrow. There used to be no point to it, no meaning in it. But now you have returned. We have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. That is now you've been given an identity. You've been given a reason for, an explanation of suffering. We have a home now. You can live with a hopeful intentionality in a world that hates you because you are the beloved of God. Enduring sorrow while suffering unjustly is a spiritual sacrifice in verse 5. And the aroma of it is pleasing and sweet to God. That's the life that smells like the life of Jesus. In light of all Scripture... Is there a time we stop submitting? Yes. And in all kinds of relationships, not just civic ones. But that's not the issue here. Fellow Americans, we need to hear the Word of God and bow before it. Because there's no such message as now. There's no, no little footnote here. Now, if you can somehow avoid the suffering life of an exile through means of, le uh, of legislation, then you don't have to do it. You, you, we can't just ignore this part of the Bible. You, 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 actually, this can be negated and, and not apply to you. you. We are not ever called to push for the kind of life where we don't have to submit to what we've been called to. And we've been called to the suffering and sojourning life of an exile. We don't call the world to bend around us. Our calling bends us around the world for them so that they might believe. Our distinction, our holiness is a missional thing. Exiles imprint their message on the world by submitting to those that may often be against them. And beloved, that kind of doing good paves the way for proclamation. If we are constantly lashing out 
and refusing to submit to governing authorities for not legislating to our advantage, it will make us look like our hope is as landlocked and earth-dependent as the rest of the world's, and no one will do 1 Peter 3.15. Nobody will ask us to give an account or a defense for our hope. It looks like we don't have any. God's redeemed and holy people are called to proclaim the excellencies of our Savior by faithfully enduring the sorrow of unjust suffering. We were given a name first. Then we were given a mission. So as we leave this morning, what if the direction of our thoughts went this way? If we just prayed through what the text says rather than just react. I've been called to a life by my Father that will ensure I never forget my name. God knows what He's doing. That we never forget that we do have a home. It just isn't here. That we do have an identity. It's just the world doesn't give it to us. God doesn't see us against the backdrop of 75 to 80 or 90 years. He sees us against the backdrop of eternity. And that's how He instructs us. And God has made such provision for you that He can call you to just let this world go because He's going to catch you as you're letting go. Your name is Beloved believer and your mission is what it is because of who you are let's stop trying to make this world our home it's not bringing any of us peace our mission is what it is because of who we are our inheritance is being kept in heaven for us where it is imperishable undefiled and unfading Jesus is holding on to you this morning let go let go we don't need the world beloved Jesus has already overcome it. Let go. And for those of you in the room this morning that do not know the Jesus of whom we speak as your Savior, please understand that all of this, every piece of identity and peace and hope and life come from believing on Him. To come to Christ believing is to be forgiven of all of your sins, all your rebellion, and be given a new name and a new life, no matter what may remain for you and I in this world. Hope in Him. Believe in Him. Trust Him. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this time. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. It is a hard text, Father, and we struggle to submit to it. I struggle very much to submit to it. But Lord, You see us differently than we see ourselves. You see what is actually true about us, not the things we're trying to make true about us. And so, Father, would you bring comfort and peace to every believer before we sing? Would you bring hope to each one of them? That this is not a, a bad news text, Father. We, we have an identity. We have a home. That's first. That's sure. That's certain. Father, for all those here that do not believe in you for salvation, would you move in their hearts to believe on you, to come to you? And this we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'll be here down front if you need to pray about anything.